can't look it up on your phone or iPad or computer, uh, it's all right. We're going to have the verses up on the screen this morning from John chapter 3. I will tell you, so this is one of those chapters. Um, I, listen, I didn't get through the whole thing in the first hour. kind of knew I wouldn't. Um, but I, let me go ahead and, and tell you, there's, there's really three parts of the chapter. And then I'm going to read the first two parts. The first part is a conversation that Jesus has with a guy named Nicodemus at night. In fact, the title of the deal is Nick at Night. All right? Couldn't resist. All right, so they got, you got that. That's the first 15 verses. Then, in verse 16 to verse 21, all right, you can see it there. If you've got a red-letter Bible, it probably is in the red letters. And... It could be that it's, you know, it's probably black letters. You know, it's John's commentary, John the Gospel writer's commentary on the conversation with Nicodemus. All right? Then you start in verse 22, and you go from 22 to the end of the chapter, and it is another um, picture. It's, it's sort of the, the rest of the story, or the rest, or the more of the story of John the Baptist. And it's a contrast between... John the baptism, John the Baptist's baptisms, and Jesus' disciples are baptizing. You, you think in John 3, Jesus is actually baptizing, except later it tells us in John that Jesus actually didn't baptize anybody, but his disciples were. And there's that whole sense where, where John the Baptist will say, I, I must become less, and he must become greater. Because he's the one that can save you. I can't save you. His baptism, ultimately, in the Holy Spirit, is what will save you. My baptism, my baptism just gets you wet. That's all it does. And so that's how it is. Now, I'm only going to probably get through part one and part two. I will leave part three for your own study. Come back next week. We will be in chapter four. Okay? Is that fair enough? All right. Well, whether it is or not, there you are. Okay, so here's, I'm going to start reading in John chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read through uh, verse 21. Here's how John tells this story. Listen, it's a fascinating story, by the way. This week, I went into a thing, and I was John chapter 3, John 3, 16. Everybody knows this. I mean, read it every Sunday on some, you know, sign, somebody with a clown wig's holding up uh, at a football game. I was fascinated by the things I did not understand, and maybe in some ways still don't. We could plumb the depths of John chapter 3 the rest of our lives and never get to the bottom of it. But here, here's how John records it. He says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, well, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he, enter a, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. For if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. But whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Well, this is the word of the Lord. You know, Nicodemus, um, we get a description of him in John chapter 3. We find he's a Pharisee, and we find that he is a ruler of the Jews. Now listen, we will see Nicodemus show up two more times in John's gospel. He'll be there in John chapter 7. He will be there in John chapter 19. Nicodemus is a fascinating character. You could not make a movie on the Gospel of John and not cast Nicodemus well. Okay? You need a good, strong actor to play Nicodemus. Because in John's telling of the Gospel of Jesus, Nicodemus is an important figure. So we're introduced to him here, and he comes at night. So when you say that he's a Pharisee, and you talk about him being a ruler of the Jews, what you, what you are to hear from this, if you were good first century readers, is that he was part of the Sanhedrin. There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of the chief priest. He presided over the Sanhedrin. Then you had um, Sadducees, and you had Pharisees. And the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees is really easy to remember. My pastor, when I was growing up, used to say this all the time. I've never forgotten it. So the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. In fact, they really didn't believe in very much after about Deuteronomy 25, okay? They just kind of dropped off for them. They weren't interested. And how you can remember the Sadducees is this. 
They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. That's good, isn't it? You can, you can write that down. Uh, Joe Temple, you can put that outside there. All right, so Sadducees and Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, these were the guys we, we might, in our culture today, we'd call them the constitutionalists. These were the guys, they strictly adhered to the law. That is all they did. They spent their days and they spent their nights studying the law of God, particularly the first five books of Moses, and how the rest of the Old Testament was a commentary on the first five books of Moses. And they were so interested in it, and they were so concerned with the law, that they even began to codify the law. They said, okay, we got the Ten Commandments, and then if you count them all up in the Torah, then you have another um, 613 commandments, which is crazy how they get to that number. But not only those commandments, then there are commandments that we need to have on top of that to keep us from breaking those commandments. So they wrote this entire thing called the Mishnah, and it was a codification of the laws. It was how you were to live based upon being somebody that wanted to follow the law of Moses. And then not only did they have the Mishnah, but then they wrote the Talmud, which is a commentary on the codification of the laws. Now, I'll just give you one quick example. To, to, um, the, 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 um, the content in the Mishnah on the Sabbath was 24 chapters long. And then the commentary in the, in the Talmud was 156 pages on the 24 chapters. This is what they did. Listen to this. So on the Sabbath, you couldn't do any work or anything like that. And in one of the chapters, it addressed, one part of one of the chapters addressed, to tie a knot on the Sabbath was to work. So if you tie a knot, that's working. But a knot had to be defined. So the following are the knots, the making of which render a man guilty. The knot of a camel driver and that of a sailor, and as one is guilty by reason of tying them, so also of untying them. On the other hand, knots which could be tied or untied with one hand were quite legal. So depending on how skilled you were, depending on how much you could get away with, which, by the way, was the theme of all this. It goes on. Further, a woman uh, may tie up a, a, a slip or, or uh, in her ship. You know, so if she has an apron, she can tie that up. Or the strings of her cap or the strings of her girdle or the straps of her shoes or sandals. Or, you know, the skins of wine and oil. Now, this is what happened. Suppose a man went to take his bucket to a well and he wanted to draw water from the well. He could not tie a rope to it for a knot on a rope was illegal on the Sabbath but he could tie it to a woman's girdle and let it down, for a knot in a girdle was quite legal. That's the kind of thing that the scribes and Pharisees did. And they believed these things were a matter of, of life and death, and if they kept them perfectly, they were pleasing God, they were, they were worshiping God, they were serving God. And Jesus will show up <clears throat> into the midst of this culture. And remember, John introduces him as the Word made flesh, which is the Word of God made flesh, which he will say in Hebrews 4.12, this Word 
He is sharper than a two-edged sword. And in many ways, well, listen, the Pharisees, they were the best of the best, man. These were the most religious guys. These were the guys, you know, they had the right bumper stickers on their car. They wore the right T-shirts. They had big honking Bibles they carried everywhere. And in their zeal to prove to themselves and to everyone around them how excellent they were, they were making a mockery of God's Word. This is Nicodemus. He's an elite of the elite. Like Paul says, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And something about Jesus has caught his attention. Something about Jesus has caught his curiosity. So he comes at night. Some people say, listen, he comes at night because in John, when he uses darkness or night, they're always kind of symbolic, you know. And so maybe it's that he's come at night. He's come in the dark of night to, to find the light. Maybe it is. Maybe that is what John means. Could be that he just wanted to listen, to be with Jesus alone. He wanted to come under the cover of night so that nobody saw that he was actually going to this guy that he'd seen at the temple the chapter before do these signs and the signs that he'd seen Jesus do and the things that he'd seen Jesus say were enough to convince him, at least him, listen, you you must be a rabbi or a teacher, although you have no formal training. You didn't go to school anywhere. We all know that. You're 30 years old. He's probably younger than... Nicodemus is probably older than Jesus. But he's curious about him. Listen, people don't say the things they say and do the things they do unless they're from God. That that is what Nicodemus had had decided. And so he shows up and he says to Jesus, he said, "Look, Rabbi," which means teacher. It's a term of respect. We know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. Here's what's interesting, and it's the thing that's been puzzling a little bit to me. I think Nicodemus is showing up because in all of his study of the law, something about Jesus' presence and something about Jesus' signs cause him to be curious, and they cause him to be curious because I think down deep Nicodemus knows he's missing something. In all of his study of the law and of the Mishnah and of the Talmud and his keeping of these things perfectly, I think he's missing something. But he shows up, and I think he shows up to ask Jesus, okay, look, just level with me. Look, it's dark, nobody's around. Who are you? By what authority do you do these things? I mean, I'm curious. If you could just give me a little bit, just... Help me along here. What is so fascinating is that he doesn't even get a question out of his mouth. His very presence implies a question, and yet Jesus is going to, in verse 3, answer a question that I don't even know that Nicodemus knew that he was asking. If you look in verse 2, you will look in vain for a question. And yet Jesus answers something, and he says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, or amen, amen, or very verily, 
unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We both know that's why you're here, Nicodemus. You've spent your life trying to ensure that you'll be in the kingdom of God. I mean, the Old Testament talked about it. They believed the kingdom of God was, <clears throat> this is what they would have been able to um, understand. That the kingdom of God was going to be ruled by a son of David. That kingdom was going to be an everlasting kingdom. It was going to come at the end. Daniel 12 then tells us there will be a resurrection. Some will be resurrected to everlasting life. Some will be resurrected to everlasting contempt and shame. So there's a kingdom coming. I want to be in the kingdom. And I might die between now and when the kingdom comes, but I will be resurrected. And Nicodemus believes he's going to be resurrected into the kingdom of God because he's one of God's chosen people. He is a Jew. By his very birthright, he has a place in the kingdom of God. That is what Nicodemus would have understood. Here's the thing. He comes to discover a truth about Jesus. He's going to be confronted with a truth about himself. And that still happens that way when we come to Jesus. What we see, when we see Jesus for who he truly is, it means coming to the place of seeing yourself and the need you have for what it is. But let me illustrate this. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, you've got Adam and Eve. Uh, they, they sin. And then what happens is, is immediately when they eat from the fruit of the tree, it says this. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They didn't have to have anybody come along and say to them, you're naked. Their conscience did that for them. And so what they try to do is they try to they try to fix their conscience by sewing fig leaves together and covering themselves. But we know it didn't fix their conscience. And we know that because they were hiding from God. But it wasn't just knowing who they were. They had come to the realization of who they were. But that didn't satisfy their conscience. It is not enough to just know yourself to know who you are, to know what you are. The sense of what I am will never bring me to God unless it is accompanied by a faith in who God is. Nicodemus is going to be confronted with himself. Whether Nicodemus comes to a, to a faith in who God is in the midst of that, we'll have to determine that later. The reality of who I am must be met with the reality of who God is. And so Jesus goes straight to the heart of it. You want to be in the kingdom of God, Nicodemus? To be in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. If you, in your Bibles, you probably have a footnote that says it can also be translated as born from above. Which Jesus will go on to describe as 
as um, being born of God, being born of the Spirit. It is a heavenly truth. It is something that God has to do to you. And so Nicodemus, in his literalism, misunderstands, or maybe he's, you know, poking at Jesus. So, so what do you mean, Jesus? A grown man goes back and does this whole birth thing all over again? It's, the patience of Jesus in that moment is really amazing to me. It's like, really? Do you think that's what I'm talking about? To be born again is to be born from above. It means to have a new life. What Jesus is confronting Nicodemus with is this. You have spent your life working on a renovation and I am telling you a renovation of your life. Turning over a new leaf. Being the best possible version of yourself you can be. Attaining to the highest of the moral standards. Gets you nowhere. It is not a renovation we are talking about. It is a regeneration. You must be made New. You must be born again. Paul will say it. The old will need to be gone. The new will come. It is dying a death to the old man, coming to life as a new man. You need to be born again. That's how you enter the kingdom of God. So he goes on and... Um, He'll tell him, listen, don't, don't marvel at this. You must be born again. That's the only way. And then he gives him, he says, listen, uh, gives an illustration about being born of the flesh is flesh. If you're born of the flesh, that's what you are. You can be no other. You must be born from the Spirit. And then he says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The word wind and the word spirit are the same word in the Greek. It's pneuma. And he's making a statement about the sovereignty of God. He is making a statement about God's activity in being born again. Nicodemus, let me stop you right here for a second because you're asking me how can you be born again and what I'm telling you is being born again is something that the Spirit of God must do into, in you. You can't do it yourself. You can't control the wind. You can't tame the wind. In fact, you can't even fully understand the wind. It comes and it goes. The wind blows where it wishes. Now, that does not mean we cannot see the effects of the wind. It does not mean we cannot see the effects of the Spirit when the Spirit is operating in our life, which is why I think he says this to Nicodemus, because I think what he wants Nicodemus to know is, by the very fact you're here, by the very fact you are seeking to understand me, that your curiosity has brought you to examine further who I am. I think that's evidence of the Spirit, Nicodemus. 
But it's not something you do. It's something that God is going to do in you. He's going to go on. He says that you must be born of the of water and of the Spirit there in verse 5. I think what he's doing is Jesus is alluding to Ezekiel chapter 36. Just listen to what it says. When God speaks to the Israelites, He's going to bring them back. He's going to restore them. He's going to do for them what they could never do for themselves. The Old Testament is filled with the failure of the Israelites to walk in God's ways. This is what He says. When that time comes, he says in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So you're careful to obey my rules. Then you'll dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You'll be my people and I will be your God. Moses has already told the Israelites, you're going to go into the land. God's going with you and He wants you to walk with Him, but you're not going to. And you're not going to because you're stained with sin. Sin is your nature. And he tells them in Deuteronomy 30 and 31, you need a new nature. You need God to come do a work in you so that then you can walk in His ways. Nicodemus, before you is that time. I am the one. I have come to fulfill what I said through the prophet Ezekiel. Well, Nicodemus will ask again in in verse 9, how can these things be? Nicodemus comes, I'm sure, with a whole litany, a whole legal pad full of questions is is the way I'm thinking of Nicodemus. The first statement is 30 words long. The second statement he makes is 20 words long. This one's four. And then Nicodemus is going to fade off until we see him in John 7. How can it be? Here's a couple of things I want to say about faith. Faith is more than coming to Jesus and getting all of your questions answered. It's more than coming to Jesus and having all your questions answered. If you came to Jesus, merely had all of your questions answered, all of your curiosities satisfied, that is not faith. And faith is not coming with all the answers. Here's the truth about faith. You want to know the truth about faith? Sometimes faith leaves you with even bigger questions. You know what Hebrews says? Faith. The assurance of things what? Known? (laughs) The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. 
writer of Hebrews will go on to say, it is impossible without faith. It is impossible to please God. It is not having all the answers. This is what we're seeing in Nicodemus. I think the questions, evidence, the working of the Holy Spirit, this is why he's going to say for the second time now, how can this be? And Jesus wants Nicodemus to know, listen, the only way that it can be is with the Spirit. Jesus will say in another place, he tells a rich young ruler who comes, I've done everything, I've done everything there is. I've followed all the commandments which Jesus indulges, he should have said, oh, really? But then he ends up telling his disciples afterwards, salvation, who can be saved? With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He has been telling Nicodemus how being born again works. How being born again works is that God does that by his Spirit. The basis on which God does that by His Spirit, He tells us beginning in verse 13. He says, listen, that <clears throat> I've told you earthly things, you don't believe those. Earthly things that were grounded in Scripture that you, the teacher of Israel, should have known. But now I'm about to tell you something you've never heard. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, verse 13, the Son of Man, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. This is absolutely astounding. This is what Jesus is doing. He's going back to a story in Numbers chapter 21. And in Numbers chapter 21, you have the Israelites. They are grumbling. They're mad at God and they're mad at Moses. And they're saying things like, Why exactly did we leave Egypt? We're out here and we're starving and we're dying of thirst. And the food we do have... It's terrible. So God says, really? Okay. Um, how about a bunch of fiery serpents? So God cursed them, if you will. And he sent a bunch of serpents, and then the serpents start biting the people, and the people that are bitten have the poison of the serpents in them, and the people start dying. And they're like, well, maybe that food wasn't so bad. And they cry out to Moses, we sinned, we're sorry. And so God, who had sent the curse on them, provides a provision for them to be saved. And what it is, is Moses makes a bronze serpent, puts it on the end of a pole, sticks it up, and he says, okay, look at the serpent. If you've been bitten and you have the poison of the serpent in you, Look at the serpent and be saved. And all they had to do was to lift their weak and dying eyes up high enough to gaze upon the serpent, lift it up, and they would be saved. Jesus tells Nicodemus, I'm going to tell you something you've never heard. That the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one who is going to sit on the eternal throne of David came as a serpent. He came in the midst of the curse. Paul will say it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We said it this morning. 
He came. He was made to be sin. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. In Galatians 3.13, you know what it says? We were cursed, but He became the curse so that we could know blessing. The poison of sin has come and affected, infected you, Nicodemus, and everybody else around you. And the only way that you're going to be saved from the curse of sin is that I'm going to be cursed. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be the one that takes the poison away. I'm going to be the one that takes the sin away. I will be lifted up. He will, will find out he's going to be lifted up on the cross. It is there. Look there and be saved. You want to know how you're born again? Two ways. The Spirit of God moves in your life to cause your weak and dying eyes to behold Jesus lifted up on the cross as your sin, as your curse. Look to Him and be saved. That's what He does. doesn't have anything to do with being a Pharisee. doesn't have anything to do with being on the Sanhedrin. doesn't have anything to do with how much you know or have done, Nicodemus. It will have everything to do with what I do. This is why then, in verse 16, and it could be Jesus' words, it could be John, the Gospel writer's words, they all kind of flow together here. You have the great statement, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And it's really hard to say too much about this. We could spend weeks and months and years and lifetimes unpacking it. In fact, we'll spend eternity unpacking this truth. And I imagine in a million, billion years... In eternity, we'll say, I saw something new in there I'd never seen before. We'll worship and praise all over again afresh. I'll illustrate it. Then I'm going to briefly, simplistically explain it. And then I'm going to talk about condemnation. And then I'm going to close with a story. And I'm going to do all that in six minutes. Here we go. Here is what is happening. The best way to tell is to illustrate it this way. There is a story about a group of college students. They're touring the slums of a city in a third world country. One of the girls on the tour notices a girl, little girl, playing in the dirt in that city. And so she says to her guide, Where's the mother? Well, why won't the mother clean her up? Because evidently she was filthy. So the guide says, Madam, that girl's mother probably really loves her. The problem you're noticing is, is that the mother doesn't hate the dirt. See, you hate the dirt, but you don't love her enough to go down there and clean her up. So until hate for the dirt and love for the child are in the same person, that little girl is likely to remain as she is. And so it is with God. 
He loved the world, so He sent His Son. He loves you, and He hates your sin. And wanted to make it possible for you to live while sin is judged. Because you couldn't survive that. And so He sends His Son to become our sin and punishes His Son so that we can have life. God, it is said, is the greatest lover. And He so loved, which means He loved to the greatest degree. The world, which is the greatest of all, offers that He gave the greatest act, His one and only Son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest opportunity, believes. That's the greatest simplicity. In Him, the greatest of all attraction, shall not perish the greatest promise. But, to make the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. In Him, we have everlasting life. Now notice this, and then I'll close. In verse 17 and verse 18, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He sent His Son to save sinners. I came, I came to save sinners, Jesus said. And whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the Son of God. Let me illustrate that this way. He did not come to condemn, but His very presence is condemning. In fact, the love of God is at the same time the condemnation of God. I'll illustrate. William Barclay says it this way. A visitor was shown around an art gallery by one of the attendees. In that gallery, there were certain masterpieces beyond all price. Possessions of eternal beauty and unquestioned genius. You ever been in a museum like that? At the end of the tour, the visitor said to the, to the guide, well, I don't think much of your old pictures. They're just kind of old. To which the attendant answered, Sir, I would remind you, these pictures are no longer on trial. But those who look at them, they're on trial. All the man's reaction had done was to show his own pitiable blindness. And so it is with regard to Jesus. If when you're confronted with who Jesus is and your soul, it responds to the wonder and the beauty and the joy and, 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 that, and that you see Jesus, that's the way of salvation. Spirit's working. You behold the beauty. You on the way. But if when you're confronted with Jesus and you see nothing lovely, it is not Jesus that is judged. It is you. You stand condemned. The reaction has condemned you. God sent Jesus in love 
He sent Him for the salvation of people. But that which was sent at love becomes a condemnation. It is not God who condemns at that moment. God only loves at that moment. The people at that moment have condemned themselves. There is a day Jesus is coming. He will be the judge. He will announce condemnation. But now, do you see the beauty? Or not? I know of no better way to end this. The rest of this chapter is this. It's great. You should read it. It's worth our explanation. But we have run out of time. So I commend it to you. We'll pick up with John 4 next week. But I'll end this morning with the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. The great Charles Spurgeon. This is what he says in his own words. It is from... He, uh, the day was January the 6th, 1850, and Spurgeon was not quite 16 years old, and this is what he says. I think that I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm. It was one Sunday morning, and I was headed to the place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen, maybe 15 people. I don't remember. I know the minister did not come that morning. He had been snowed in. At last, after moments had passed, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He found himself obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. And the text was this from Isaiah 45, 22. Look at me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope in me, for me in that text. The preacher then began. My dear friends, it is a very simple text indeed. It says, look... Now, looking don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It just says, look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn how to look. He could be the biggest fool and learn how to look. A man needn't be worth $1,000 a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. See, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No. Look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you will say, well, I must wait for the Spirit to be working in me. You have no business with that now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. Well, the good man followed his text this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating and great drops of blood falling. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am seated at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. And he'd gone on 
about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so. He was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixed his eyes on me, and as if he knew all my heart and said, Young man, you look miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good it was a good blow and it struck right home. He continued. You'll always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey the text. But if you obey it now, this moment, you'll be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I do not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, and I, I looked until I could have almost looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of any. I could have sung the precious blood of Jesus and that simple faith which looks alone to Him. And now I can say I am born again. Friend, if you have never looked, if you have never looked to Jesus, beheld Him as beautiful in His sacrifice for you, I invite you this morning to